everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Fearcast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, and anxiety spectrum disorders, the treatment of those things, and getting your life back. My name is Kevin Foss. I am a licensed clinician specializing in those things, and thank you all so much for joining uh, joining me for this podcast today. So The Fearcast is typically a question and answer based podcast where you, the listener, get to, uh, if you so choose to, email me questions about um, anxiety or OCD treatment or about uh, uh, specific issues going on in there, and uh, I will answer your questions here on uh, on the episode. So if you have a question for a future episode, you can go to fearcastpodcast.com and go over to the Ask Question link, and uh, you can ask your question there. It'll email to me. I will read it. I will consider it, and I will likely put it up on a future episode. So while usually the podcast is questions and answers, sometimes I do interviews uh, with uh, uh, researchers or other clinicians or other people talking about their experience or their knowledge and uh, experience with OCD and anxiety treatment. This episode is actually, is actually both. This episode actually has someone who is a specialist. So he's going to be talking about body dysmorphic disorder. So BDD uh, it goes by a lot of different names. Body dysmorphia is one of the popular names for it. Um, but uh, we're going to be going over the differences between those two. So you just buckle up and wait. But Chris Tronsden is is joining me for this episode today, uh, and he was so kind to uh, lend a ton of his time to talk about just what BDD actually is, what it isn't, what treatment looks like for it, his experiences with it, uh, and then he also was so kind to hang out for uh, uh, hang out at the end to answer a couple of questions. So. So we we were very, very lucky. All of us are very lucky to have his experience to talk about that. So um, this is going to be a long episode, so I'm not going to try to uh, uh, drag this on too long. The first thing I want to say is just thanks so much to anybody who's out there or anybody who listened, who joined in for our um, our talk at the uh, OCD SoCal uh, conference this past weekend. Uh, it was it was super fun to do, uh, super fun to chat with um, uh, Kelly and Lauren about uh, just about uh, ERP and how to make exposure and response prevention work for you and uh they those two are just a a, a wonderful two group <laughs> those two are just a, 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 a fun a fun pair to talk to and uh, they're also incredibly knowledgeable so it was a uh, it was my pleasure to be a part uh of, of their talk so all right so without further ado let me tell you a little bit about chris so chris tronson is an ocd and anxiety specialist with the gateway institute in costa mesa he currently serves as the Vice President for the International OCD Foundation, the IOCDF, the Southern California affiliate, so the OCD SoCal Group. He is also the host of Chris's Corner, which is an educational and support group put out by the IOCDF. Chris has been featured on articles and TV shows running the gamut talking about, uh, talking about OCD and also talking about body dysmorphic disorder. In fact, he was recently featured in a BuzzFeed article about BDD, and he does talk a little bit about that in the episode. So I had a lot of fun chatting with Chris. I've known Chris for quite some time, and uh, he's, uh, he's not only a great presenter, a great teacher, but also an incredibly compassionate person uh, when, when it comes to OCD and anxiety treatment, including body dysmorphic disorder. And I say including because when I say anxiety spectrum, I will include BDD within that. So without further ado, here's my interview with Chris Tronson. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today to talk about BDD. 
Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've known you for a while. Um, I love that you're doing a podcast. I think there needs to be more mental health uh, information put out there. And I'm just honored to be here and to be a part of it. Absolutely. Well, you you certainly have uh, have uh, uh, built a name for yourself and kind of uh, uh, putting out information and being a, a, a voice for folks in the body dysmorphic disorder world. So I wanted to have you on the FearCast just to talk about what the diagnosis is, how it works, what treatment looks like, how it differs from OCD, and also, you know, most specifically for those who might be suffering from this or questioning whether they're suffering from this, uh, what can they do about this? And, and, and um, you know, as with everything, is, is there hope? And I, I, I'm assuming the answer to that is yes, but, but just to talk about that whole arc. So let's, um, uh, so I'll, I'll send the mic over to you, but um, I guess t- tell us what is BDD and, um, and however you'd like to explain it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So body dysmorphic disorder, or what I'll probably refer to as BDD throughout this podcast, um, it is an OCD-related disorder. So what that means is currently in the DSM, um, it is coupled with OCD. I'm curious to see in the next edition if that's going to be the case. I believe it may get its own um, kind of, you know, obviously its own its own category. But the reason that we have it in the OCD and related, uh, you know, for, for BDD is in the o- OCD and related disorders is because there is some crossover. So we do see obsessions. We do do see compulsive behaviors. So BDD first and foremost is prevalent. You know, we, we believe there's up to five to 10 million people in the United States alone that have body dysmorphic disorder. So it's about 3% of the population. However, there's a lot of shame and a lot of fear and a lot of isolation because of this disorder. So those numbers are difficult to find, Um, but it is a prevalent disorder. And so what BDD is, it's where an individual has an obsession around a body part or body parts. Now, usually it's the neck up. It doesn't have to be, but it's where common obsessions can be, you know, the size of one's nose. Um, I'm seeing a lot of women like the obsession over how small their lips may be. For a lot of people, it's their jaw, their chin. Um, It can be obsessions of brown skin so either i have too much acne or my skin color is you know is is red or it's it's you know looks very bumpy or not smooth the fear of hair falling out. So when people hear that, a lot of people are like, well, I could relate to, I don't love my skin or I don't love my hair. But what makes BDD unique is for the individuals that have it, this is a perceived flaw. Either they don't have a problem with those areas at all to the outside public, or it is so minor that nobody would notice unless they get really close and stare for a while. So the way that I like to kind of give people an example is when we talk about anorexia, we may look at somebody who has um, anorexia nervosa and say, wait a second, like that person is very, very thin. How could they ever be, you know, restricting their caloric intake? In fact, they need to gain more weight. But when they look in the mirror, they see themselves as abnormally thin and think that they need to gain weight or get heavier. It's the same with BDD. I'll have a client that comes in here and they may be obsessing over their hair loss, yet they have a full head of hair. Or I've had clients that obsess over uh, the condition of their skin, yet I don't see anything on their skin. And they'll go to a dermatologist to demand to go on Accutane or something because they feel that they have horrific acne. 
and the 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 uh, dermatologist won't prescribe it because they'll look at this individual and say, I don't see anything. You have the most mild case I've ever had. So that's what's so maddening about this disorder is people will look in the mirror and see these disfigurements of their appearance. It's much more than just thinking they're ugly. It's literally a disfigurement or something that looks almost subhuman to them, abnormal, um, and, and feel that people are staring and looking at it. Yet when they go to their friends and family for reassurance, the friends and family look at it and say, I do not see what you're seeing. And that's where the conflict gets in. So that's where the obsessional component comes in. Now, the compulsive component is usually in the form of a lot of avoidance. So not leaving the house or leaving the house late at night, a lot of camouflaging. So people will wear makeup to cover up their skin, hats or hoods to cover up the hair loss that they feel. They might layer their clothes or wear baggy clothes to kind of cover up body parts that they feel are abnormally large or oddly shaped. Um, a lot of my clients during COVID right now are extremely excited because they get to wear a mask to cover up their jawline or their chin or their lips that they feel is small. A lot of checking in the mirror is another very common compulsion. And also I see with the younger generation, a lot of looking into their phones, Snapchat, pictures, videos, and they're looking at different angles and different lightings and different situations to try to see that body part and to get self-reassurance that they look good enough to leave the house. Now, if they see something they don't like, then they may isolate and and not want to go. So we see for compulsions, it's a lot of avoidance, camouflaging, mirrored video and, and picture checking and reassurance from others. And the reason we call it body dysmorphic disorder and not body dysmorphia, which we hear a lot, is we know that disorder component means that this person is spending at least an hour a day on these compulsive behaviors, these obsessions, and it's really negatively impacting their relationships, their job, their schooling, their friends, etc. So that's kind of like the diagnostic uh, rundown of what BDD is and how somebody can get diagnosed for having it. Right, right. I, I'm interested in that. So, with with all of that, um, with all of that diagnostic criteria, how does BDD then differ from just kind of a, a, a typical vanity? Or, you know, because people are, for the most part, we are, whether we like to or not, admit that we do care about how we look, how we present, what our body looks like. How can one differentiate between someone's, some kind of typical traditional, I'm calling it vanity, but how we care about our looks until the point where it starts to graduate to a, a, a diagnosis of BDD? Absolutely. And that's one of the things I always address in sessions with clients is that in general, you know, we are an image based society. I mean, advertisements constantly like, you know, people on TV and stuff always have clear skin and, you know, celebrities that look good get a lot more praise. The way that BDD differs in someone's basic appearance is, is really that fixation on a body part or body parts. So these individuals are coming into my office and they're feeling like one eye is higher than the other. And they're constantly looking up and researching different surgeries. How can I get my other eye to match that eye or a disproportion in like cheek shape? You know, one side of my cheek sticks out. So it's these very like minute details and the person, you know, what makes it different from OCD is these thoughts are very egocentric, meaning this person truly sees and believes that this body part is deformed. So when we have general vanity, we may not like our weight, we may want, you know, our hairstyle to be different or our skin to be a little bit clearer. This is where you and I would look at this individual and say, I, I just don't see it. Like this person's cheeks don't look abnormal or this person's skin looks clear or, you know, 
I, sure, maybe they have a little bit of hair loss on the sides, but it's barely anything and it looks fine. But this person is fixate on it. They're constantly checking it and they're devastated. I mean, they feel more than just general anxiety, which we can sometimes see in OCD. They feel disgust. They feel shame. They feel guilt. They feel um, embarrassed and abnormal. And so it's become so bad that they're spending hours upon hours in mirrors, looking up, you know, different surgeries, going to forums. And then they're also looking up like the, you know, different ways that they can get these things fixed. You know, what is out on the market that they could fix it. And it becomes such a consumption that they aren't at work. They aren't at school. They're dropping out of all these things. So an average person may not like their weight and they may work on cutting back, you know, on snacks and getting in the gym. But my clients can spend eight hours a day, 10 hours a day fixating on these body parts that they just don't think are you know, acceptable. And that's the big difference. It's a lot less about like liking or not liking, but actually thinking that there's something wrong with it and a disfigurement that other people would see and just be basically grossed out and and looked at as grotesque. So a lot of times when I talk to them, there is no self-esteem. They feel abnormal, subhuman, and want to fix that body part so much just to be able to enter back into society. Right. Uh, And it's... I noticed you you said that the the obsession was in a sense it was or you actually said it was it was egocentric it was it, therefore it was it, it, in line with them they felt that that thought was consistent with who it is that they are however we, I think we would all say that the the behaviors that they go about doing it would be egodystonic they don't like those behaviors so they're going about doing it um, I guess. That that seems at a striking distance, or at a, a, a very much different, rather, uh, than OCD, where the obsession that someone is having is egodystonic. Could you speak to that? Yeah. So when I work, you know, I work with both obsessive compulsive disorder and body dysmorphic disorder. And the thing is with OCD, I would say the majority of my clients, like a high majority, know that the obsessions that they're having are just not who they are. They don't believe them. They see the errors in that thinking. And that's part of the frustration is they're like, I didn't hit somebody with my car last night, but I am so inclined to circle my neighborhood for hours just to get the anxiety to go away. And once I'm calm, I'm frustrated that I did that. For most of my clients that come in with BDD, I was not their first stop. Their first stop was dermatologist, cosmetic uh, surgeon, cosmetic dentist, um, you know, things like that. A lot of my clients with BDD aren't even wanting to be here. Maybe it's a friend or a family member that's, or a husband or a wife that's like, look, you need help. And for them, they don't believe that it's a psychological disorder. Like for them, they truly believe that something's wrong with them and they're in line with that belief system and they feel like they're doing what they need to do. They'll look at me and, and, and that's why there's a connection with their thoughts is they're like, well, if you look like I did, you would be doing the same things. You wouldn't be getting psychological help. You would recognize that we need to fix this behavior or this appearance. So the difficulty and what I think is also a little bit different than OCD treatment is a psychoeducation is such a huge part of this. I have to get the person to really, truly understand that they potentially could not see what is, is reality. So trying to convince somebody that when they look in the mirror and they look at pictures and this person is doing it much more than the average person, what they see is absolutely not true. Their reflection that they notice is not what other people see. Luckily, there's research out there. I, I, I always think of Jamie Fusner out of UCLA's research that when they hook people up 
to basically it's like they have images in front of them and they have, um, you know, technology that kind of tracks that person's eyes. What we notice is the average person, when we look at someone, we make kind of eye contact, we call it the triangle. We see the eyes and we see like the tops of the nose. When we look at the way somebody with BDD looks at things, they're not looking at eye contact. Their eyes are constantly looking around the face and looking at different parts. And so when they've done further research, they found that people with BDD are really good at looking at minute details and they miss the overall picture. So if somebody, the way that translates in BDD is if somebody feels like they have a a slight scar on their cheek, when they're looking in the mirror, they're going straight for that scar. They're blowing that scar up. They're noticing the detail and they're missing the whole image of their face. Therefore, to them, this scar is gaping. It's huge. It's overpowering their looks. So this research and the education is to get the individual to recognize that there's a potential that they aren't seeing what's real and they need to be open to the behavioral therapy and the other components of BDD treatment. And then they can finally start seeing them as as normal and getting back out into life. Right, right. There's a tremendous difference then between the the way that OCD presents and the way that BDD is presenting. I mean, the the, the oh, I'm gonna, I think it's a I think it's a Jonathan Grayson joke. The the insensitive OCG, OCD joke. What's the difference between someone with OCD and someone who's crazy? It's the person with OCD knows they're crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I love that and probably use that joke way too much in session uh, <laughs> to illustrate the point that someone with OCD is able to differentiate this. And they, they have that feared side of their brain that goes, oh my gosh, what if this thing is true? But then they have this other rational side that goes, that doesn't make any stinking sense. That's, that's wrong, or that's inaccurate, or that's not the way the average person does it. And while that voice may be very small and is overpowered by the anxiety voice, it is a, it, that the the presence of that rational kind of wise mind voice is there. The way that you're talking about BDD, it almost sounds like that there is a delusional component to it. I know the delusional component can can sound very scary to a lot of folks, but ultimately, what it sounds like you're saying is that they is it that they are literally seeing the world and themselves differently, or is the is the power of the feared side of their mind just so strong and so overpowering that it's it's all almost it, it's excessively difficult to hear that that wise mind voice you know I, I when i talk to people the difference is when i have my clients in session that are not triggered let's say they're calm they're relaxed with ocd they can definitely tell me that they recognize that their thoughts are are absolutely just not in line with their values they know that they aren't real and that's frustration i can have a client that's in session with me who's not triggered they haven't been triggered by you know an image or a picture or like a look from somebody etc but but talking to them especially towards the beginning of our treatment they aren't in that calm state talking like OCD. They're not saying, Chris, look, I know that my nose is fine. I know it's not a big deal. I know that I see it incorrectly. And when I'm triggered, that fear part of my brain takes over and that narrative in my head gets so loud that I do the compulsions because of that fear. They, in their calm states, believe that as well. And I look back to my own case of body dysmorphic disorder because not only treating it, I'm also an individual with. And I remember like in high school thinking that I had such bad skin and getting very frustrated that dermatologist after dermatologist would not put me 
me on higher medications thinking I had horrible acne scarring. Well, now I can look from a, you know, a post-treatment brain and look back at those pictures from high school and see that my skin was clear. And if I didn't live through it, it would be hard for me to understand my client's experience. But I genuinely swore that I saw discolorization, just, you know, uh, pot marks in my face and all this. And now when I look at those same pictures, I used to look back in high school, I do not see any of that. And that's because what the research is showing is people with BDD see themselves different, but the, the research has even gone beyond that and said, it's not just appearance. People can look at a house, for instance, if they have BDD and when they've done research and people can really, really notice details of the house, but forget what the house in entirety look like. Also, people with BDD and the, the research have shown that they misjudge faces. They see neutral faces as negative, which speaks to the part of BDD where people constantly think people are negatively judging them. So part of that is why there's such a kind of like mirror photo video retraining component of the treatment. We got to get the person in front of a mirror to start giving themselves eye contact, to not quickly go to the part of the body they hate, not getting super close to the mirror, being able to see their whole self as well as other people. So it's all part of the treatment is retraining how someone sees images, which is a part of, of treatment you don't even touch in OCD. So that's where it's a lot different as well as really getting someone to start seeing themselves as the, how the world sees them. Gosh, that's an, that's, um, that's an interesting treatment approach. I mean, I, I would see that for someone, and, and that, I think this helps differentiate one of, the, one of the differentiations between OCD treatment and BDD is that with someone with OCD, um, you, you'd be pull, having them pull away from these compulsive behaviors. And if they're constantly looking, them, if they are constantly looking in the mirror, you'd say, well, that's a compulsion. We need to avoid mirrors. But you're kind of describing uh, n- not avoidance of mirrors or, or resisting mirrors, but actually just a retraining of how we do that in a reasonable way. Could, could you uh, tell me a little bit more than, hey, this is a fine transition, I suppose. Tell me a little bit more about um, what treatment looks like. How, how can someone who's, who they, they finally got into treatment, they're sitting on your couch, how do you guide them through this, this treatment? Yeah. So one thing that I see with BDD treatment that's a little bit different than OCD is there's a lot of layers. So normally I'm starting out with just finding out, getting an overview of what their life now looks like. Because a lot of times, like with OCD, I'm trying to see what things do they no longer do because of the disorder. I'm trying to pull out those values that they've given up because of the disorder, because I want to use that as motivation of why they should get better. So somebody who is really active in martial arts or somebody that loved gymnastics and is no longer doing that. After that, like I said earlier, it's really about that psychoeducation component, having them understanding that they're seeing themselves and the world differently. And there is a disorder and there is a reason that they're seeing things, things different and why their family and friends don't see the same quote unquote, you know, flaws that they see. Once we've done that, that's when I usually jump into this kind of like mirror video picture retraining to get them because we can't avoid mirrors and we can't ref- avoid reflective surfaces. So if I have somebody, you know, who's looking in the mirror 50 times, Obviously, we have to reduce that amount. We have to put some rules in place, but we're never going to get somebody to avoid mirrors altogether because that's just impossible. So as I'm working with the individual, they're standing arm's length from a mirror. They're making eye contact. What I have them then do is keep that kind of like whole self image and eye contact 
and have them from their head down to their toes describe their appearance, but in a very objective manner. So almost like they're describing an image to like a, you know, like a police sketch artist, because when the person with BDD looks at a picture or a video or, or a mirror reflection of themselves, they are really coming in with very negative thinking and negative verbiage when they're describing themselves. So for the first time, this individual is seeing their whole self maintaining eye contact and describing themselves very objective using objective you know, words. And what people will notice is like, I've never kind of looked at my whole self and I've never not put myself down the same with pictures, the same with video. Now I want to find a balanced approach for all three of those. I don't want them spending hours taking pictures from different angles. I also don't want them to avoid pictures with their friends. So we make some rules. So when it comes to pictures, videos, and especially mirrors, if there's a purpose to use the mirror, great, go use it and use those tools that you've now gained. But I don't want you jumping into a mirror throughout the day because you're just telling your brain something's wrong with my appearance and I have to engage in mirror checking. Going back to what we're talking about the we're going to use a little bit more for the thoughts of a traditional cognitive behavioral therapy approach. So a lot of times in BDD, people have created these sort of like core schemas or beliefs about themselves. So they usually include I'm unlovable or I'm unattractive or people don't want to be connected with me. I don't deserve um, positive attention. I'm disgusting. I don't belong. Those are some of those core kind of deeper fears that we get to. So part of the treatment is evaluating where did that belief system come from? How has BDD sort of taken over how you see yourself? How does that contribute to those deeper beliefs? So we're going to start to look at some of those cognitive distortions, some of the ways that they got those beliefs. An example is I've had clients say, well, this kid in, 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 you know, in fifth grade made this comment about my forehead being large. Because they then took up those compulsive reinforcing behaviors, always wearing hats, having a hairstyle that covers their forehead, you know, not going out when there's wind, not taking pictures from a certain angle. They've taken that comment from when they were, you know, 10 years old and they've reinforced it for 10, 15 years into a deep belief. So it's recognizing like, well, would you take advice from a, a fifth grader in real life about financial advice or dating? Well, of course not. So it's starting to challenge some of those, you know, er, like those errors in thinking. There is going to be a exposure and response prevention component that we see in OCD. So if somebody isn't going to the mall because of the bright lighting, just like an OCD, we're going to work up and we're going to go to that. The difference, though, is I see a lot more of kind of like an emotional experience for them. There's a lot more shame, a lot more guilt. And whereas with OCD, I can be a little bit more forceful. It's like, well, accept and tolerate those feelings. You can choose how to respond to them, et cetera. I do try to process with the person. Like, what are you feeling right now? What are you experiencing? And that kind of leads to sort of what I feel is like the, the final component of BDD treatment. For a lot of people, there's these underlying things that are going on from that. And this, you know, detachment from society and not feeling good enough and stuff like that. There's like a real connection to it. And in their heads, if they can just fix those appearance components, 
and get attractive or at least normal looking, they can finally re-enter and they can be of value. So that's part of the the final part of treatment, which I feel like is pulling out the roots is let's start looking at what other values you have. What else makes you up as a person? What would your friends and family say they appreciate about you? Oh, you like to give back. Well, let's foster that. Let's find a place to, to volunteer that has nothing to do about your appearance and let's get into volunteer work. The other component is human connection. That's something that everybody with BDD wants, but feels that they aren't attractive enough to get. So for a lot of my clients, I'm the first one that they've interacted with in years because they've been isolated. So it's getting them back out into society and making human connections and friendships and things like that, because that's what we got to value more. So as you can tell, similar, you know, I know I've just took, you know, months of treatment into like, a, you know, paragraphs, but it's really a holistic approach to get that person to, you know, see themselves as like a whole deserving person that deserves love and attention and interaction and recognizing that the the appearance is BDD's way of getting that, but there's never an end date. Nobody ever fixes that body part in surgery and feels good. Either they hate the surgery or it just changes to a different body part, or they feel like the surgery was wrong and they have to get more surgeries to back it up. So when people learn that BDD is making their gate, kind of their key to getting back to normal life appearance, what I'm trying to teach them is like, no, there's so much more to you. And there's a, you know, there's a lot more to value. And that's going to be your way to getting back into society and making meaningful connections, not the appearance. Right, right. It, it definitely sounds like a... Uh, this is and this is not a a criticism certainly of the treatment, but it sounds like a a, a touchier feelier approach to treatment. There's going to be a lot more uh, emotional processing, a lot more emotional discussion than it would be in a traditional OCD where it's where it's going to be, you know, f- feel the fear, kind of a more of a brute force, go feel it, go do it, and you know, in the nicest possible way, for lack of a better term, well, we got to suck up those feelings and you know, obviously tolerate and learn that we can tolerate those feelings, et cetera, et cetera. But oh yeah. yeah, but when it comes to this, it sounds like there is just going to be a lot more. It's going to be a little bit slower in a sense because there's going to be exposure, and then a lot more unpacking of what came up from that and what and and it's going to be maybe a little bit deeper in processing than in a traditional OCD manner. Is that to is that a Correct. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it's funny because I almost feel like I'm nicer to my clients with BDD than OCD because the person with OCD knows that this just isn't real. And I'm, you know, we can go and push harder. I feel like BDD is, is, is a definitely different feel. And look, I've had a lot of clients that I treat that came from somebody who was a strict OCD therapist, didn't have much experience with BDD and it didn't work for them. And that's because the person would sit in a mirror and look at a picture of themselves and like blow up the flaw and then sit there and say, I'm ugly, I'm ugly, I'm ugly for half an hour of the session. And what I've tried to explain to therapists is the problem is your client's already doing that. They're already doing they're already, that. Yeah, they're already zooming into the body part they don't like. They're already looking at it under a magnifying mirror. They're already calling themselves ugly. And, and so if they're doing that with the help of a mental health professional, now it's like, well, it must be true because my therapist is having me do it, etc. So if we come in with that kind of like brute force that we see with OCD, the person with BDD is just just already put hard on themselves. So it's not going to the complete opposite end and like reassuring them and everything's fine and you're attractive, of course, but there is a lot of emotion. So for example, 
you know, looking at the deeper work I did in, in BDD therapy, there was a lot of uh, feeling of abandonment because of my relationship with my dad and my family, especially my dad has, has always gotten compliments for his looks. You look younger, you're attractive, et cetera. So there was a lot of this idea of like, a you know, appearance growing up and, you know, putting on a good face to public, et cetera. And I'm not saying that caused the BDD, but in my head, if I wanted to be appreciated by people and accepted by people, I had to look good. I had to look the part. And so that was like this kind of underlying thing I had to work on and understand that it's like, no, I can make connections and keep people around for other reasons than my looks that, you know, so sometimes there's clients that have trauma work or other things that kind of contribute to the reason that they are so worried about their appearance and care so much about how they present themselves. So, you know, sometimes I can do that work with a client if it's around BDD. Sometimes they might need to see like a trauma specialist, et cetera. But it's one of those things where we have to kind of process those emotions and deal with the things that are underneath. Whereas OCD, I don't want to do that. I don't want to spend sessions wasting time talking about stuff underneath when it's really about let's go do the ERP, let's do the, you know, the act principles, et cetera. So that's where I see a huge difference for sure. Yeah, I was going to say in your description, it sounds like there's a, there is a heavy component of act, particularly the the commitment piece of, of moving, of, of going outward rather than continuing to go inward. Oh, for sure. And everybody with BDD is inward. Um, you know, it's hard for them to concentrate when they talk to people. It's hard for them to focus. So it really is, you know, and and getting into like, what is your value system? What are you things you care about? And what they start to recognize is their appearance has nothing to do with that. You know, they're, you know, if they want to be a really good, like, you know, uh, uh, uncle to their nephew, the, the nephew doesn't like you because you have a perfect nose. So it's starting to them to get to, to realize that the appearance actually isn't as important as they think it is. Yes, we care about our looks, but it's definitely not something that's valuable enough that they should restrict spending time with family if their nose doesn't look the way that BDD says it needs to look. Right, right. The the exposure piece, I think, for for it also sounds a little bit different. It sounds like a, an exposure component is going to be is going to be kind of exposing yourself to that thing, but rather than exposing yourself to the the the, the scar, the acne itself, and thinking that you're going to habituate to that, it's more of a retraining of viewing it and intentionally reinforcing it as this neutral component and just tolerating the feelings that do come up and making space for that because it, I mean, it almost sounds like a hyper uh, a sensory motor sort of area as well it's like we're not going to habituate to swallowing we can habituate to the story of what the swallowing means yeah. So a big part, I'm very fortunate that my office is located to one of the largest malls in, in, you know, in Southern California. And so a lot of the treatment, once the person is ready, is dropping those safety behaviors and going in public, because that's something that they most likely, if they have a more moderate to severe case of BDD, don't do. But I'm not like drawing a circle around the, the acne that they think they have and going up to workers and putting their cheek in. It's more so about, because the, a lot of times... I ask them, why don't you go to a mall? And they'll say, I don't feel like I deserve it. I don't feel like I'm attractive enough. Yes, they're worried about the the judgments mm, and the feelings, right. but they almost feel like they don't deserve to be in that kind of spot. So for them, just going and interacting with people and not doing their safety behaviors and, okay, I have to look from this angle because this side of my face looks better or whatever it is, that's enough for them. There's a lot more emotions that come up often. And so it's processing those emotions. It's also recognizing like, what are the false beliefs that are 
coming up in your head. And as somebody starts to engage into life, they start to feel more normal and say, well, I was accepted today at the mall. The worker helped me and was polite. The person we bumped into and asked him about his cologne because it smelled good was nice. So this belief system that people are going to stare point push away, isolate, didn't come true. Maybe I can't look as grotesque as I think, because that's not how people would react to someone with a huge disfigurement like they feel. Yeah, there's a big inhibitory learning component, it sounds like. Oh, for sure. I love the processing component once we come back from the office because it is about learning. It's like, what did we learn today? How can we take that learning and apply it to other places? Do you see the fear, you know, just the the, the tolerance that you had and you were able to do that and really kind of process what does this mean and taking that on a more universal component? So, you know, if, if they can do it at my office, do you recognize or the mall, do you recognize how when you return back to college, What do you think is going to happen if you're engaging with people and you're interacting with people? Well, I think that they're going to accept me too and things like that. Right. And I should let me let me specify what inhibitory learning is for folks who don't really know. First off, as I've said this a billion times, inhibitory learning model is the worst name in in this treatment because it tells you nothing about it until you understand it. Basically, it means that and you can tell me if I'm wrong in this, we're we're relearning what what things and interactions are, are actually safe, or that that situations that we do are actually, quote, safe. And I put safe in quotes because we say driving in a car is safe in that you could die, right? But yeah. it's safe. <laughs> Interacting with people, someone with, for someone with BDD, they have this perception that it's dangerous, that if they go out and they, quote, look the way that they look, they're going to get rejected and judged and ostracized and, and pointed at. But by going out, they learn, oh, I, I can do this. The mall is safe. Interaction and relationship is safe. In that there is the non-zero percent chance that something could happen, but that it's, quote, safe. So through doing this, we're learning that I can, this person can go out and do this. And for the most part, things work out. Yeah. And and the way that I always describe inhibitory learning, like in a simplistic way, which you yeah. basically did, but I always tell people, and I got this from Alec Pollard, so I should probably not take credit for it, but I look at it as like, unfortunately, the brain has put safe things or relatively safe because, right, you know, you could talk to a person, they could go out of nowhere and hit you, I guess. But right. in general, talking to a worker at a, at a store is safe. But unfortunately, the BDD has put that in the unsafe category. And so through us facing that, we're kind of pulling it back into the safe category. But absolutely what you just said is people start to learn that they can interact because I always come back to I think the biggest core of, of um, you know, with BDD is everybody who has it, they just want to be accepted. They want to be loved. They want connection. And that's unfortunate what the disorder takes from them. And then the belief becomes, if I just fix this appearance and these other things that I don't like about my image, I will then get that love and acceptance. So when they recognize that their body part isn't quote unquote fixed yet, yet they still were accepted accepted and people treated them nice and you know my staff did and I did and the person across the street and the hotel clerk that they're staying at, all those things it really makes them question do I really need to change this body part to get what I want I'm getting what I want I'm dating I'm having all these things happen yet I haven't fixed the body part so maybe it's not as bad as I originally thought right and I imagine a huge component of that is is also broadening out your attention as to what actually happened instead of looking for all the things that confirmed the belief that that my appearance, my nose, my eyes, my whatever it is, is grotesque, looking for the more, for lack of a better term, the, the more positive outcomes, the more neutral outcomes. 
Absolutely. It's, it's just like most of anxiety and OCD based disorders. There's a huge all or nothing component. So it's right. being able, I think my job after the event is to kind of look at the whole totality. So even if there was an incident that wasn't positive, okay, what are five other explanations why that worker was rude? I remember with a client, we went across the street and a worker was generally rude. And their belief was obviously if I looked you know, normal and this body part was fixed, that worker would have been. And I'm like, well, that worker was mean to me too and mean to everybody else. So what's a better explanation? And it gets them outside of this framework that everything revolves around appearance. It's like maybe she was having a bad day. It was her last day. She wasn't friendly, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, maybe you look like an ex-boyfriend. I don't know. But she just wasn't a friendly person because that's another component is getting people out of this framework that things do or do not happen based on someone's appearance. Right, right. So I know that we're we're buttoned up against the end of our time, and if and if uh, we we might have to reschedule to do those questions, if that's all right. Uh, since but but I've but I've two two questions, and we'll schedule. Yeah, whatever. absolutely. <laughs> but I have two two more elements of, uh, or I'm curious about two more things. One is, and, and I I feel like the answer to this is going to be it's going to be different for every person. But in the in the process of helping someone to switch from my appearance is the problem Two, maybe my appearance is not the problem maybe the problem is this disorder that is misperceiving the world what are some what is is there a common turning point for someone or is there an element of treatment that helps kind of turn that switch on that they're able to entertain that thought and maybe buy into the possibility that that the the appearance is not the problem I would definitely go back. Yes. Great question. I would definitely go back to it really is getting them out of my office and around people. I do believe that's that because what I'll do prior to us going out is I'll say, let's say somebody with a deformity, what are common ways that the public will act? A big one that we come up with is children are going to say something because children aren't nice and they don't keep their mouth shut. So a child's going to point, stare, say something, you know, um, things like that. Um, there'll be a lot of a looks, a lot of stares, teenagers, you know, good old teenagers, right? They're going to make a rude comment or make fun of you, et cetera. Um, you know, so we come up with all these things. So they have this expectation because like I said, especially when I'm doing an intensive outpatient, these people are, are severe. They genuinely were even afraid to meet me. I'm going to be staring. I'm going to see what they see. It's going to be just as bad and I'm going to re, you know, reconfirm that. So to every client that I've worked with, I see the turning point as when we finally get out in public because the mere retraining, the other stuff that we worked on, the thoughts, et cetera, has gotten them to to be able to sort of buy into this idea and learning about the disorder like hey maybe this isn't true but to them their true test is well chris is a therapist and he's nice so he wouldn't say these things my family loves me and they're nice you know i can edit my photos i put on social media so therefore people aren't seeing the real appearance and the people i do have in my life are safe people etc so when we go out into the you know the quote unquote like cold dark world right and we're around children and we're around teens and we're around people and nobody's pointing and nobody's staring and nobody's commenting and nobody's doing all of these things that are built up in their head what i say is what does BDD have to say now? What happened there? We went and we dropped those safety behaviors that, that BDD says, well, at least keep you hidden. And none of that occurred. What, what could that mean? And of course, if we keep doing that and the person's able to start to say, well, it can't be as bad. Maybe I'm not ready yet to believe that it's fine looking, mm-hmm. but it must not be just as bad as my brain has built it up because that wouldn't have happened. 
all the other things that we came up with prior to going out, those things would have occurred and not one of those happened. And in fact, some people are nice and kind. And it's like, well, how do you explain that? So, Right, right. So they are really going to have to challenge and, and, and put it to the test and see that their perceptions of themselves and their 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 feared expectations are not going to happen. I call it the feared story. That feared story mm-hmm. didn't happen. If that feared story doesn't happen, we have to think differently about it. Because obviously that story is inaccurate, not serving you any longer. I would say one common thing is, you know, most of my clients have no social media presence and they'll try to tell me, why well, don't like social media? You're 14, you're 17. Everyone likes Everybody social, likes media, social media. Yeah. So at that age. And even my adult clients, I'm like, you like to keep in contact with your friends on Facebook. Don't lie. So that's the other thing is as they get more comfortable and they start putting pictures up on social media, same thing. They're not getting comments. What's up with your hair? What happened to your hair? Or you used to look so much more attractive 10 years ago when I knew you, you've completely let yourself go and you look hideous and deformed. What happened? Right. So as people put themselves out and genuinely receive not even necessarily nice, but just kind of like neutral reactions. Once again, it's easy for me to do my job because once again, if the BDD and what you see in the mirror is accurate, why are nobody reacting like that? Do you really think society is that nice that everyone's come together to not hurt your feelings? Not on the internet. No, (laughs) exactly. That's why social media is a big part. We just put your picture up public and you didn't get trolled. You didn't get all these people making comments. Maybe what you're seeing is just not accurate in what the public sees. Right, right. So, so my my last thing before I let you go, I know you've got yeah, clients today. Is um, what what can family members do? Family members and loved ones, if they have someone in their life that is possibly struggling with BDD, what what can they do to help them either get in uh, get in an office to see you, or maybe start to see that what they are experiencing isn't, or what they are perceiving is not what the rest of us are experiencing. Yeah, I I would definitely say the first component is not aiding and abetting the BDD. So a big way that this happens is, you know, family members look researching different surgeons across the country or, you know, helping financially to support that. I would say the biggest thing that makes it different than getting somebody help with OCD versus BDD, it's not going to be effective telling your family member, this must be psychological because your skin to to me looks great, or this isn't psychological because to me, your legs look fine. What it is that I usually tell parents and coach them to say that usually works is to tell their loved one, look, I totally understand that what you see, you feel is real. I'm not going to argue with you that on, you know, that on you, but I can also see you're in pain and maybe Chris, or maybe a BDD specialist isn't going to be able to get you to a point of liking what you see and they don't have the ability to change or they're not surgeons, et cetera. But don't you think that what you're going through the isolation, the pain does deserve some kind of attention, the depression you're experiencing, the sadness, wouldn't it be nice to talk to somebody who understands and could at least help you through this process to deal with just how negative you feel, et cetera. So a lot of times when parents talk to their loved one like that, I tell parents, do not, the biggest mistake you can make is arguing with your loved one about their appearance and the validity of it. Cause now they're going to feel like you're making them crazy. And I see this and how could you not, you love me or my mom. Of course you're saying that. So when parents instead go to the loved one and say, as your mom, as your dad, as your older brother, et cetera, it pains me to see you this way. I don't want you to have to see a general therapist that won't get it and is just going to, you know, argue with you as well. But this person specializes in BDD and body image. They'll get it. No, they can't change how you feel about your cheekbone structure. 
they definitely can at least let you not be in so much pain. And as a parent, that's what I want to see in you. So a lot of times when the clients first come in, they may be a little bit shut down and say, look, I'm not going to ever like my body. You can't make me. And I tell them that's not the point of my treatment is to convince you your body looks great. My job is to have you explore the possibility that there's a disorder here and to get you reconnected in your values, your life and start to interact with the public again. I'm not going to challenge you on your appearance. I believe you experience and see what you believe just like I did when I was sitting across from my therapist but I also know that even if you did have the nose that you think even if you did have the chin structure you think you still deserve friends and love and happiness so I'm going to try to get you to that and that's how people are usually willing to come in Mm, well that's that's a fantastic way to phrase that. Yeah. So kind of, yeah, speaking to the emotional component of it, not to the content of what their fear is, but that they're in pain, they hurt, they're sad, they're scared, they're lonely. Let's fix that stuff, not this other perception of what yourself is. Yeah. And one of the things I always say to them is I say, okay, if there is somebody out there, because I'll ask them, do you feel like you're the only one with this? And sometimes I'll say yes, but a lot of times they're like, no. Or, you know, do you feel like people that, you know, got acid thrown on them or somebody that's lost a limb in the war or or somebody who's lost all their hair because of chemo? Would you go with me to those people and walk up to them and say, what are you doing at the store? you're too ugly to be here. Go home, hide. And my client will say, of course course not. not. And I'll ask them, then how come you're doing that to yourself? Right. Even if you don't think that your appearance looks good enough, I'm not here to convince you of that. Don't you still think that you deserve the right to see a movie in public? Don't you still think you have the right to walk your dog outside and, you know, at the park? And it's getting them to recognize that they still have value, even if their appearance isn't the way that they want it to be. Right. Oh, man. All right. Well, Chris, we're going to have to uh, put a pin in this and we'll, we'll touch base on some questions about BDD here in a moment. But uh, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. I mean, I hope, you know, somebody listening to this, either that kind of triggers either in them or a loved one uh, of theirs, you know, that they could potentially be experiencing BDD. And I think the biggest thing is the more information, knowledge, education and treatment we get out there, the less and less people we're going to see suffering in silent, uh, silence. And just like OCD with BDD as well, there's a high Um, you know, suicidal ideation and suicide attempt component to it. And I believe a lot of it is just because they don't understand that there might be some other explanation. So I hope somebody who's struggling hears this and is the reason they get help. Absolutely. Well, Chris, thank you so much. And we'll, uh, uh, listeners will hear some delightful music and then hear us fade back in with uh, some questions, but they will not know that perhaps a week has gone by. So we, (laughs) we will touch base here in a moment. All right, well, this first question comes from, excuse me, this first question comes from Phyllis. She says, body dysmorphic disorder and body dysmorphia are sometimes used interchangeably. However, I cannot find body dysmorphia in the DSM-5, only body dysmorphic disorder. Can you please clarify? Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you so much for that question. What I think is important is, you know, in case somebody isn't sure what the DSM-5 is, that's the latest edition. It's a very thick purple book that I have in my office, but it lists out all the different mental disorders um, according to the DSM. You know, so in order for someone to have a diagnosis, it would need to be found in there kind of coming from the, uh, you know, the, the mental health psychology and clinical communities. What we also know is there's a lot of terms used just in our everyday and that 
you know, term or that description of the disorder that they're exploring isn't in the DSM. So it's not, you can't go to a, a therapist and have your insurance reimburse you because it's not even technically um, looked at uh, according to DSM. But what we want to remember about body dysmorphic disorder versus body dysmorphia, I always want people to remember when you see that term disorder, what that kind of symbolizes is this individual is struggling. They're having a hard time connecting with friends, with family, leaving their house, their school, their work is absolutely being negatively impacted by this stuff. They may have suicidal ideations, depression, a difficulty with functioning. So if somebody is diagnosed with a disorder in the DSM, it doesn't mean that they have that diagnosis, but they like it or it's fun or it's light or if it's fluffy. Now, obviously we know there's a spectrum. So you can have somebody who has extremely severe BDD that may not lose, uh, leave their house and has a low quality of life. And you may have somebody with a little bit more mild of case and it's still interfering with their life, but maybe not to the same degree as the individual I described first, but it's still a disorder. What has happened though is body image is huge in our country and, and all over the world. Every different um, you know, uh, culture and, and place on this planet has different beauty standards and ideals and it negatively impacts people, especially people that don't feel like their body image fits into what society deems acceptable acceptable and attractive. So when we hear that term body dysmorphia, which is used a lot, I've seen it a lot in like articles and magazines and, and body image coaches describing it. The description is basically somebody who isn't content with their body. And usually body dysmorphia focuses more on like the neck down. So it's somebody who is at the beach and feels very heavy or a guy that works out and doesn't feel like he's as muscular and is intimidated by the guy lifting next to him. So they'll say, you know, I have body dysmorphia. I feel really uncomfortable with my body, how it looks in clothing, how it looks in a bathing suit. And I don't want to discount their experience, even though it's not in the DSM and it's not a diagnosis, it still is very difficult and it still should be treated with somebody who is a special, you know, somebody who's a specialist and is working in the field that treats body image related disorders. However, when we look at BDD, this individual has a diagnosis for a reason their image that they see in the mirror isn't accurate and they focus heavily on potty parts that they feel are actually disfigured or unsightly. Typically, but not always, uh, BDD is the neck up, usually focusing on things like hair, eyes, nose, mouth, chin, skin. But there also are people at BDD around maybe the size of their, their calves or the way that their hips are. So the best way I can describe the difference is if somebody has gotten a diagnosis of BDD and it's in the DSM-5, that person um, is basically really struggling. They're, they're noticing that it's an hour or more a day that they're fixating both mentally and physically on this problem and definitely need specialty care. Somebody who has body dysmorphia, it's a term that is used really loosely also, you know, so if somebody looks in the mirror is like, ew, oh my God, I look fat today. I have body dysmorphia today. It's a very kind of light word. So what I always want to remind people is the biggest thing I hear in our community is people with BDD feel like their experience is being sort of trivialized or scoped over that idea that, oh, everybody has a little bit of body dysmorphia. So to me, they're very, very different. Um, definitely differ in severity. And I just always want us to cautious, caution us using a word like body dysmorphia because we don't want to take away the um, distress somebody with body dysmorphic disorder is actually experiencing. It, it, the way you describe it, it sounds very much akin to the I'm so OCD discussion. Exactly. Exactly. It's the best way I could describe it. Thank you for, for coming in with that because I think that's the best way for the OC, OCD community to understand it. 
you know, somebody may get a little frazzled if somebody sits on their desk and kind of moves things around. They're like, oh, you know, I'm OCD about my desk. Let me put it back. And somebody with obsessive compulsive disorder is going to feel very trivialized. It's the same with somebody who doesn't like how they look in a dress because they're experiencing body dysmorphia that morning versus right. somebody who has a diagnosis and their whole life is unraveling. Right. I think one of the, it sounds like also one of the differences between body dysmorphia, the, the term is body dysmorphia and body dysmorphic disorder, um, and to a certain degree how it differs from OCD and I'm so OCD, uh, is that body dysmorphia seems to be a lot more colloquially accepted and less tongue-in-cheek, less in intentionally or unintentionally insulting. It's more of an acknowledgement of of a socially socially acknowledged commonality that we all have, or that we all, as we've talked about, are a little bit vain, things like that. Whereas, exactly. you know, the, the I'm so OCD or I'm so OCD about my desk or something, that term lately in the past, what, decade has become, has kind of been taken by society and perhaps ridiculed more than the term body dysmorphia. You said it really, really well. You know, it... It's it, that's the difference, you know, it, and, and look, we're, we're trying to work on terminology in the mental health community at large because people will say something like, oh, the weather is so bipolar or, oh, my God, he was insane. He totally drove fast on the freeway past a cop. I'm so, so schizophrenic you know, today. <laughs> exactly. So I think in general, you know, it, it would help because what would happen is, you know, you don't hear people saying, oh, I can't have dessert today. I'm feeling a little bit uh, diabetic or somebody isn't saying like, oh, I lost, you know, I shaved my head today because I'm feeling a little cancerous. So we people don't joke about physical um, health issues. And that's why it gets the respect and the uh, support and the focus and the resources and research it, it deserves. So I know that if we can do that, exactly with mental health as well. We can start taking things like OCD, BDD, and related disorders seriously. I mean, this is other than people do say, I'm, I'm about to have a, pain, a heart attack with mm-hmm. this or this stress. True. But, but, that, but I, I, follow, I follow what you're saying. I, I can't not be a, a fire starter. But anyways, but yes, I, ultimately, <laughs> I, I agree with you. These, these terms, um, you know, the, 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 minim, the, the minimizing of the experience through I'm so OCD isn't ha, isn't limited to just OCD. There is the I'm so schizophrenic, so bipolar, uh, you know, f- fill in the blank. But it doesn't make it okay that it's happening. Um, I know we're, uh, perhaps uh, to Phyllis's question, we're getting a little off off topic, but um, but to, so to get back to it, it's ultimately, as you're saying, body dysmorphia is not the diagnosis in and of itself. If you if someone can have body dysmorphic disorder, maybe describe it as body dysmorphia, because that may be more colloquial to them. But they're not going to find any information because it's not a thing. It's like, while we in OCD land have terms like, you know, sexual orientation OCD, we have harm OCD, things like that, that has been a helpful colloquial term for us to kind of get a very quick idea of what somebody is experiencing. Those are not diagnoses. Obsessive compulsive disorder, that is the diagnosis that someone's going to have. I've I have clients who say like, oh man, I, you know, I have contamination OCD and now I just found out I have sexual orientation OCD or I have, now I have, you know, scrupulosity. Oh my gosh, I'm so messed up or something to that effect. Whereas really it's just, it is OCD that is manifesting in these different themes. Whereas it's not that you are now collecting or acquiring more diagnoses that quote makes you more broken. It just, it's, it's the same disorder manifesting in different ways. Exactly. I I think a good way to think about it is I know I had a client that was super excited that rumor Willis, uh, Bruce Willis, and I believe um, uh, 
Demi Moore's daughter. But anyways, she came out saying she had body dysmorphia. And so a lot of my clients got really excited. But as they read about it, you know, they could see that her experience was very different. And usually when people say that, they're still, especially celebrities, they're still able to go out and be in a movie and be in a movie premiere and take pictures. And, you know, even if it's not a celebrity, somebody with body dysmorphia is still going out to the beach on the summer and they're still posting on social media and really, you know, doing all that. Whereas people with body dysmorphic disorder tend to not be in that space, especially when it's undiagnosed or untreated. Um, they're not going to find themselves being able to just live a full life while feeling uncomfortable on the inside. Typically they aren't leaving the house. They aren't taking pictures, et cetera. So yeah, I, I think the, the severity is a huge way to tell the difference as well. And that's why BDD has earned its space in an, you know, in the DSM, whereas body dysmorphia has not is right. the best way to think about it. Right, right. So, Phyllis, I hope that helps answer your question and um, hope that helped to clarify. So, um, well, why don't we move on to the next question? This next question comes from Jessica Joy. So, she asks, which well, starts out with, hi there. She goes on to say, so I have OCD diagnosed last June and I struggle with an obsession about loose skin under my chin and neck. I'm 31 and I like what I see in the mirror on a day-to-day -day basis. What gets me stuck is that in certain angles, the skin I have from, lo from losing weight looks way worse than when I see it, uh, than what I see on a day-to-day. -day. So the OCD hook is that I feel like, uh, or I feel like I don't actually know what I look like. Don't actually know if I'm still beautiful. Don't know if my ex broke up with me because of my looks and the list goes on she goes on to say as a whole i manage ocd pretty well and resist compulsions more often than not the particular theme has me stuck or this particular theme has me stuck i can't find any resources on dealing with body image specific ocd because all you find are resources on bdd which i don't think i have it feels like uh, feels like more of an uncertainty of which mirror angle is accurate as opposed to body dysmorphia again these terms being used interchangeably I'm not sure how to excuse me, I'm not sure how to treat this most effectively. How do I navigate seeing myself at different angles and not knowing what I actually look like to people? Help. So I know this so this question kind of straddles that line between these two things. This one she's acknowledging that she has been diagnosed with OCD, but it is more focused on her appearance. So how would you differentiate them between the OCD and body dysmorphic disorder? Yeah, because what's really difficult is a lot of the things that um, uh, Jessica, a lot of the things that Jessica mentioned in her comment are things that individuals with diagnosed BDD do struggle with. So people with BDD often blame their appearance for many negative things that happen in their life, whether it's an ex breaking up with them. It could be potentially why they lost a job or how come somebody else got the promotion over them. So the aspects that Jessica's talking about, about, okay, could it potentially be that my ex broke up with me because of this? That's a very often common, you know, obsession we find in BDD. The other thing we find in, in individuals with BDD is they really struggle to know how they look like, especially because like with Jessica, they see themselves in different angles. They might see themselves in video versus pictures, different mirrors, different lighting. And so there's becomes this obsession where individuals with BDD will take pictures at different angle, video from different angles. They'll look in different angles, different lighting, different mirrors. 
And because they're constantly doing that throughout the day, they almost lose grasp of how they look. And that's because a, a, an individual without the disorder may look in the mirror once or twice in the morning, once or twice at night throughout the day if they have to a couple of times. So they really get this kind of solid understanding of how they look. So a lot of the things that Jessica is, is talking about does sound like body dysmorphic disorder. But once again, that's why BDD falls under that OCD and related uh, disorders categories because there's a lot of similarities to both OCD and to BDD. When I have worked with clients that have obsessive compulsive disorder around their appearance, there typically isn't that shame or the disgust or this negative feeling about their appearance. I've worked with people that may have um, perfectionism about their appearance. So they may do similar behaviors as somebody with BDD. So they spend hours getting ready, making sure that everything on their appearance is to the T, you know, their facial hair, their haircut, their skin skincare, their clothing. And there isn't really this belief that they're unattractive or people see them as repulsed, but there's just not a perfection with it. So what I would recommend for Jessica, first of all, just to be able to get a lot of clarity is I don't think it would be a bad idea if the uh, therapist they're working with does understand BDD to do a BDD Y box to see if any of the things in the BDD um, diagnosis is something that she can relate to. Or if that a uh, therapist doesn't know it, I would say getting even just like an assessment. I know, you know, there's, there's a specialist that will do an assessment because sometimes people with BDD are fine with that body part. So it sounds like her focus is the neck and the skin that she feels is, is uh, left over from losing weight. Um, there are people that may typically have a little bit of extra weight, but because of the BDD, their belief about it is much worse than what the average person sees. Mm -hmm. I also have a lot of clients that may like a body part in a certain way, but not others. So an example is I've worked with people that felt like their nose looked great from head on because they couldn't see the bump that, you know, from the side, they felt people couldn't see their horrible bump except from the side. So I would have clients that if they were sitting face to face to people taking face to face pictures, you wouldn't know they had BDD. They're posting pictures and videos and loving it. But if somebody sees them from the side, they completely fall apart. Right. Um, so I, I think kind of getting into that. Now, if, if they end up going through that whole thing and it turns out it's not BDD, it is just an obsession around body image, I would treat it like any other obsession. So you would want to drop those compulsions. So it sounds like the compulsions are consistently looking at their uh, face in different angles to kind of see how their neck you know, how they're, uh, in their opinion, like their neck fat looks, it's ruminating, ruminating compulsively to see is, you know, is this why my ex broke up with me? And we know rumination doesn't work because you're not ever going to get the answer from the ex in your own head. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sitting there and trying to answer a question in your head that you can't answer is where people are doing those compulsive rumination that is getting them stuck. And then the obsession that they may not be beautiful and they may misunderstand what they look like to the average person, you'd want to treat those things like OCD. The big reason I'll, I'll kind of end with this, unless you have anything to add, the reason you want to make sure it's, it's OCD and not BDD is the treatment's a little different in the sense of people with BDD, if they have to kind of accept that their body part is as bad as they think, it almost makes them worse. They fall into a deeper spiral, whereas somebody with OCD, they have to kind of accept that worst case scenario and tolerate that it may be as bad. That's one of the ways that maybe she could, um, you know, write a, a worry script about her skin not being as great. And does she find herself accepting that fear, that uncertainty and tolerating that? That may kind of point it towards OCD. So I think the reason there's not a lot of literature is, is often 
you know, obsessions around appearance do fall more in that BDD category. Yeah, from the way you were describing the differences between BDD and OCD, it sounded like one of the main differences that Jessica would want to look at is the severity, or the severity, and almost the the delusional component of the way that she views her looks. Does she view her, the the skin as something that she simply, you know, quote simply doesn't like, or would rather it be some other way, or is it does it reach that level where she thinks that this thing is is grotesque is awful it makes her look like a gargoyle that it is it is shameful it, like that so the the intensity with which she experiences it and also the difficulty that she has to either convince herself or allow other people to quote convince her that it's not as bad as she thinks is she able to have that flexibility would that be one of the diagnostic differences between these two in jessica's case at least yeah, absolutely. And I, and to expand on that, I mean, is this something Jessica experiences or have she gotten feedback from people that she loves and cares for? So for point. instance, you know, there are people that don't have OCD or BDD that do go through a huge weight loss and have extra skin. You know, is it something a dermatologist or a doctor has pointed out or a family member that has said like, Hey, you know, you have some loose skin, like do this, et cetera. So, you know, sometimes, you know, people are like, well, nobody would say that out loud. And I'm like, maybe cause I'm Greek, Greek people do say stuff out loud and they will make a comment. Like every time you go to a family event, it's like, Oh, you've gained weight. It's like, hi, nice to see you too. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where is this kind of in her head? Is she catastrophizing this? Like, and I also think with the BDD, there's a shame component. There's this feeling of ownership to these thoughts and to these feelings. Whereas if it's OCD and it's more of like this just irritating, constant worry, this constant intrusive thought that she wants to get rid of. And she's like, no, I know I'm beautiful. It's not that bad. I'm fine. But oh, I want this thought and this feeling to go away. Does it feel more like this outside kind of, you know, disorder pushing those thoughts in? Or is it strictly just that, you know, she really believes this. Like I said, if it, if it was ultimately OCD, you know, what I always remind people is it's important to know the content of the obsession. It helps sort of navigate the exposures. And I think there's certain elements of certain subtypes that it is valuable to focus on. So people that might have pedophilia OCD or more of those taboo thoughts might experience more kind of like shame and guilt feelings, whereas somebody with just kind of general contamination might focus more on like frustration and anxiety. So ultimately treating this like any other obsession, if it does turn out to be OCD, if it's BDD, making sure to work with someone um, that's going to help you kind of navigate the spe specificities of the treatment for BDD. And I love what you're talking about in, in terms of uh, scripting, because um, with uh, with scripting or imaginal exposures, as we've, we've talked about for uh, in previous episodes, uh, these are stories that you would write in first person and in present tense of having whatever you're afraid of actually happen in the story, writing it out to its natural consequences. Uh, and you can play with those as well and exaggerate different elements of it for specific reasons. But that's going to be really helpful for OCD because we're playing it out and tolerating the existence of the thought, not convincing ourselves that that thing is actually going to happen, but saying this thought is there and I have to tolerate that this story is something that may potentially could maybe kind of happen as a, a potential future. But it, it sounds like it differs than for BDD because they're already believing this. They're already in this headspace, so doing this, uh, doing the exposure script is really just going to be reinforcing that fear um, rather than trying to dispel it. 
Yeah. And the biggest difference is if I do, you know, go and, and utilize a worry script for body dysmorphic disorder, what I make different about it is less of a focus on the concern and more on the false kind of exaggerated belief of what they think is going to happen. So for instance, if somebody has hit and run OCD, I may include elements of actually hitting someone with their car in that worry script and really focusing on the senses like the glass shattering, you know, the screeching of the tires, like feeling the, you know, the um, airbag come out and hit you in the face, like getting out of your car and noticing something, someone laying in front of you, like really kind of getting descriptive because that event hasn't happened. And that person knows that this isn't something that they believe occurred, or they have enough kind of objectivity to be able to say, like, I know this is an obsession. If I do that in a script for BDD, the person already believes that I'm just kind of reinforcing it. Like I think I said in, you know, in earlier in the episode, I've had people come to me where their script is them just writing over and over. I am ugly. Society thinks I'm ugly. My family thinks I'm ugly. And they come in and saying that was one of the most horrific experiences. They never habituated. They never got clarity. So worry script, what I might focus on instead is let's say, for instance, I'm working with a client that's going back to in-person school this fall. I might focus more on what is that experience going to be like? What is potentially going, is it going to feel like if there are people staring, if you do see people kind of looking over and then whispering and focusing more on that stuff, because they have the power to control their reaction to how other people um, interact with them. I steer away from us writing out how bad the body part is, because once again, it's past the body part. It's more about human connection. How are you going to tolerate that? There may be people that don't respond to you in the way that you like. I'm hearing a heavy emphasis on uncertainty and uncertainty of the effect that that body part has. It's kind of less about the less about the body part itself and more about the uncertainty of quote its effects. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And it also helps people. What I love about a worry script is it allows the person to sort of go there. So when they do go to school, it doesn't feel like the first time they've ever experienced that. And that may be important, especially if the person has not been going out that much in public because of BDD. Right, right. So, um, so to Jessica, I, I hope this was helpful. The, uh, I, I mean, as uh, as Chris uh, perfectly said, um, n- noticing what your compulsions are. I mean, you obviously said looking at yourself at different angles. So, doing your best you can to resist doing those, eliminating the analysis of how you look. Do I look better over here? Are you taking pictures? All those things, pulling those out of that routine, and then tolerating that. And again, working with a therapist who may understand the differences between the two to try to figure out what's going to be the best and most effective way to deal with this. But it sounds like one thing that we can agree on is noticing what compulsions you're doing to try to give yourself that certainty or that confidence that, quote, you look fine, quote, you look fine, and pulling out those compulsions and, and sitting with that discomfort. So, Jessica, thanks so much. That's a, that, that, was, a, that was a really good question. And it, it, so, um, so, wanted to get then into the last question, um, not knowing how long it'll take, because you never know these days, right? <laughs> so, the last question comes from Lori Beth. She says, Hi, I'm wondering how to work with OCD from the start of my day. I think I may have BDD also. I'm always wondering if I look bad, I'm always checking myself, but I can't uh, but I can only check myself in a very small mirror. If I'm by any mirrors at stores or other homes, um, I go into complete panic. This problem is holding back joy in my life. Uh, if I'm okay with myself, if I can, uh, if I can get on with my day, but if I'm not feeling good about the way I look, I feel that I can barely do anything. I'm currently taking—I uh, can't even pronounce that—exilpram. 
ex- I, I hate these. She's taking medication. And lorazepam, I can read that one as needed. Um, is there anything that can help me? Thank you. So first off, I just want to talk about medication for a second. What kills me is that they they say, all right, here's the, here is the 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 product name but then here's a whole other name that you should also know that it's equally impronounceable it just kills me but that being said the first time the first time i heard the word wellbutrin which is a a a common medication for anxiety and depression i thought it was fake i thought they were lying to me like wellbutrin just like of course that sounds like a psychiatric medication doesn't it yeah anyways all right yeah no it's funny because people will tell me what medication they're on and some medications may have um generics with like 10 to 12 different names and so you are constantly catching up and it's never something that's easily rolls off your tongue to remember it's always a lot of like opams of frams and things like that so it's, it's very confusing but more of the story is so she's saying that with all this going on she is taking medication which medication for a lot of people um can be the difference can be a a game changer in whether or not they're able to move forward in treatment often i kind of find that if someone is stuck in treatment one of the things that may be missing may be medication but but then again, I'll encourage that person to go talk to a psychiatrist about that um, and whether or not they need it. But Lori Beth, you're already doing that. So why am I wasting our time talking about that? So, um, so, so Chris, you, you, you read through that. What, what are some things that, that jump out to you in this? Yes. You know, I, I jump out is a great way of saying it. Cause I, as you were reading the question, there was a lot of things that came out to me. So what I do want to start about is this idea with mood and how somebody's mood can constantly change with BDD. So for instance, when Lori Beth was discussing how, you know, if I feel how, you know, if I feel good about myself, how I look, I can totally get on with my day. But if I'm not feeling good about the way I look, I feel like I can barely do anything. Absolutely. That's a huge component with BDD. And what's what's difficult is that mood can change quickly. An example would be, let's say someone with BDD is at a family party or a friend's party, et cetera. And they feel great. They got out of the house. They, you know, maybe if they're not in treatment, they've done a lot of compulsions. They leave their house and feel great. And maybe they catch a glimpse of themselves at the party in a reflective circle surface or they go to the bathroom and look in the mirror and because it's not a mirror they like or they're used to or the lighting etc if they don't like the way that they appear somebody without bdd may have rationale and say "Ooh, the lighting in here is bad or oh i caught my glimpse at an awkward angle in a in a microwave so of course i'm going to look you know disfigured in the weird screen but an individual bdd will be convinced that this is actually how they looked and what they felt prior to walking in here was a complete fallacy. And so their mood's going to completely drop. And often people will immediately leave or think about leaving, or if they're forced to stay, completely disconnect and not even be present because of how they feel. So when Lori Beth was discussing, someday she feels great if she likes how she looks. It's a huge component of BDD. Another one, as I was kind of alluding to earlier, is this idea between good mirrors and bad mirrors. So people with BDD can have a mirror that they feel confident in. And often there might be some form of camouflaging in that. So checking themselves in a small mirror where maybe they can't fully see their whole appearance or they don't see parts of the body they don't like. Sometimes I've had clients that will, you know, blur their eyes when looking in a mirror or have the lights in the bathroom off and only a a distant hallway light on. So there's enough light to see, but not really see details. Or I've had clients put Vaseline 
seen over a mirror so they can see themselves but it's blurry and then when they have to go out to to in this question with Lori beth like to a store or other people's houses where it's big mirrors and mirrors they're not used to it completely has them crumble so as i was talking earlier in the podcast this idea of mirror retraining is very crucial because what we're learning how to do is not only look at ourselves objectively and see our whole selves but also to make objective observations versus subjective judgment so if you're at a store and you see your appearance and you go straight to i hate how i look in this mirror my skin tone looks off my nose looks big or whatever body part they're focusing on your emotional experience will be so negative you'll buy into that panic and you'll want to leave whereas if you see yourself in the mirror and you can quickly restructure and say okay i'm not liking how i currently look in this i have body dysmorphic disorder therefore i'm not going to like things i see out of my comfort mirror i'm here at the grocery store to shop so i'm going to completely do that or i'm at my friend's house like Lori best says i'm going to complete you know focus back on interacting with my friends because human interaction is more important than a judgment of my appearance so having somebody not buy into there's something wrong with you based off of the reflection so we want to get people to get to a point where they can start using traditional mirrors anywhere obviously not going to one extreme of then staring at themselves at a friend's house for a couple hours in a bathroom but being able to use different mirrors and also on days that they don't feel great about their look to also be able to function and to get things done because they are whatever they're doing whether it's work or school or hang out with friends the purpose there is that versus worrying about how you look so i do you know i can't diagnose Lori beth of course but i do want to at least let her know because she said she may think she has bdd there is enough here that you have criteria of the you know of the dsm criteria for bdd you do have components it would not hurt to definitely get assessed and often um because people are familiar with the y box the yellow brown obsessive compulsive scale which um, lets you know the severity of ocd there's a bdd version as well so your clinician may be comfortable with it and it will give you some ideas if this is something that you also have Right, right. Yeah, thank you so much for going over all that. It was very, uh, very, very comprehensive. And one, one thing you, you had mentioned, in terms of that mirror training, gosh, I could just hear people listening to this saying, Chris, that sounds so much easier said than done. Like to the, that idea of, oh, I'll just look in the mirror and I'll just think right. And to, to that person, I, I hear what you're saying. And yes, it is certainly easier said than done. I think I've said that for every single exercise and cognitive restructuring and mindfulness and, and just willingness to go do exposures. Yes, it is easy. But especially the, the way you've been describing kind of mirror retraining, it is re training there is a active component of putting yourself in that position and reinforcing these new skills maybe learning that skill for the first time and man the first time you do these things you're going to feel really awkward and it's going to feel wrong and feel like you're you're not doing it quote right whereas the more that you practice it the easier it gets and the more natural it starts to become so to anybody out there wondering about, you know, are they are they going to be able to accomplish these things? It's going to be through practice and and being disciplined and consistent about using the, that 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 objective observation as opposed to that subjective judgment uh, about yourself. Would you say that's uh, that that's accurate? 
Well, what I like what you said about it is it's a process, the way that I look at mirror retraining. So if somebody, you know, if it's too difficult for somebody to look in the mirror right off the gate, we can do a couple things. We can have them bring in a picture that they do like of themselves and practice being objective with that picture. What's going on in the picture? What's happening in the backgrounds? What does what your clothing look like? What are some basic features to, to identify, such as brown hair that's short to the shoulders or, you know, whatever it is in the picture? Um, we can always even start with somebody who's not that. So just picking like a neutral face off the internet and practice restructuring and work up to that. But it is a process. I mean, you're relearning how to function right now. People with BDD will be the way that they look at themselves in the mirrors, the way that they talk to themselves, the way that they interpret thoughts are all set up and designed to dislike how you look to isolate and to be miserable is BDD's kind of ulterior motive. So it is going to be a process to basically learn how to be more objective, how to not come in with judgment, how to see yourself differently. You know, I talked a little bit about it earlier, but I have a whole set of rules that I ask BDD individuals to follow that are designed to get them to go away from the compulsive way that they see themselves. So not checking the mirror first thing when you wake up and last thing before you go to bed, not consistently getting up close into a mirror, avoiding reflective surfaces. If I have, you know, a water bottle next to me, I can kind of see my reflection, but it's easy to decipher that as like abnormalities because it is a weird shape and it's going to stretch things. So what I've had with every client that is willing to do the work and really does, you know, really does it, they'll start to say, now that I'm in pictures and I see myself differently, it's awesome. You know, a friend will tag me on a picture. I look at the whole picture. I see my friends. I remember the memory, you know, and obviously my friend wouldn't put a picture up if I had food in my teeth or I wasn't looking at the camera. So I know it's a generally good picture and I, I like it. I see it differently. Uh, an activity I do with clients a lot is um, there was these two uh, celebrities in the 90s and 2000s. One is uh, Cindy Crawford and one is Enrique Iglesias. And they're kind of known for having a mole, which, you know, for, for Cindy, they call it a beauty mark. And I'll have a, a really zoomed in image of that mole and I'll have people describe it. And they're like, ew, it looks gross and it could be hairy and it looks awkward and I wouldn't want this on my face. And then I send them the picture zoomed out and it's, you know, Cindy Crawford in a photo shoot and it's Enrique Iglesias on his album cover. And I'm like, now describe this person. Two people unanimously known for being attractive. Exactly. Eye contact. And, and, and without fail, they're like, oh my God, these people are beautiful. They look great. And I'm like, that's what happens to you though. Like every time you get in the mirror, look at a picture, you're basically doing the same thing. You're kind of cropping that body part you don't like discounting the rest of your body part, fixating on that, and then having a negative um, viewpoint on that and you're missing everything. So if you can do that with somebody else, you can do it with yourself. And over time, somebody starts to see themselves overall. And, and, you know, I always tell people the goal of treatment is not to get to a point where you love the way you look and, you know, go seek out a modeling contract. That's definitely not it. It's to get to a point to recognize that you aren't the disfigured person you see. There is absolutely components of BDD that has you see yourself differently, exaggerate certain things like we talked about earlier in the podcast. But lastly, it's to really understand that you are an individual with worth and value who has incredible roles, values, and, and goals in your life. And there's no reason that you can't go achieve them simply because you don't always like what you see in the mirror. Right. 
I, I think that's perfectly said or well said, and, and I think that's a great way to, uh, or a great place to end the questions. So, Chris, thanks so much for, for taking the time to answer some of these questions, and thank you to uh, to Lori, Beth, Jessica, Joy, and Phyllis for sending in these questions. So, uh, to anybody out there who uh, who has a question about something that we, we typically don't talk about the FearCast, know that I see them, I get them, and if I, and if I get a few of them, we're going to get someone up here, an expert who knows uh, more about it than I do. So, again, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to answer these questions. Yeah, and you already said it, but thank you so much for everyone who sent in a question. I know it's always difficult out there. I hope everybody's getting help. And thank you so much for having me on. And one of my missions is always to spread more awareness of body dysmorphic disorder. So thank you for doing that on your podcast today, Kevin. Absolutely, Chris. Well, thanks so much and have a good day. You as well. Take care. All right, everybody, you made it through that very, very long episode, but thank you so much for holding out and uh, uh, listening to the whole thing. For those of you who are listening to this, you made it through. So again, everybody, if, if you have a question for a future episode, if you would like to ask a question uh, for Chris about BDD, feel free to go over to fearcastpodcast.com and let me know over there, and uh, I will wrangle him back up when we have a, a, enough questions that, uh, that he can so knowledgeably answer. So please remember everybody that the FearCast is not substitute for psychotherapy. If you have questions about treatment and would like to, uh, or maybe need a little bit of assistance and guidance in your own treatment, you can go to fearcastpodcast.com, go to the find help link, and there's going to be a number of other uh, uh, resources for you there. All right. So until next time, everybody, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.